You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Working with older collections in archaeology, whether it's a baggie of flakes to, you know, a warehouse full of monos and matates that are stacked on top of each other. That all can consist of a collection. I've noticed the students really connect so much more with the material that we've been learning about if they can actually then handle the material. Hello and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. My name is Chelsea Slotten, and tonight I'm joined by Emily Long, Deidre Black, and Cheryl Fogel-Hatch. Good evening, ladies. Thank you so much for being here tonight. So on tonight's episode, we are going to be discussing working with older collections in archaeology. What are older collections? Where are they housed? What are some of the issues surrounding working with them? Why is it important to work with older collections? all of those sorts of of questions. And one of the things that inspired this particular episode was at the the SAAs recently. There was a conversation that went on on Twitter that was begun by John Lowe. And then, um, and you'll have to excuse me, as a Twitter conversation, I have people's Twitter handles, not their real names, but Gingery Gamer and... Um, Archeo Anna and Panukish and you know a whole bunch of people got involved in this this conversation around the question what responsibility do advisors and collections managers and curators have to encourage their students and researchers to work with existing collections rather than going out and and digging and that particular conversation had thousands of replies um and it's absolutely fascinating and it's not surprising i think everybody definitely has experience of seeing moldering collections and just going oh god what are we gonna do with that yeah and and i mean some of the conversations really varied um or some of the comments varied quite strongly depending on what geographical area people were in from you know north america to europe being the two most well represented areas that participated in this in this conversation but it was it was really fascinating so i think before we go any further it's probably a good idea to define what it is we mean when we're talking about older collections essentially collections are anything housed in a museum uh forest service park service blm office anything that requires curation can be then considered part of a collection whether it's a baggie of flakes to um you know a warehouse full of monos and matates that are stacked on top of each other uh that all can consist of a collection even um the journals and the paperwork that's all part of an excavation it all kind of follows into one massive collection that's being housed at different locations and the quality of the curation can be different all over the place from fantastic um, temperature controlled beautiful museum quality uh, 
warehouse style areas to house different kinds of collections all the way to a wooden shed that's full of uh, mice and spider webs. So <laughs> there's a broad range of where uh, collections are being housed and how they're being housed. But essentially a collection can be prehistoric, um, historic, uh, it can have tin cans, it can have pieces of uh, Mayan gold and whatnot. It can wide range of things and how those things are stored can really depend on the objects themselves. Uh, pottery can be a lot harder to store in terms of their fragility. To uh, matate, you can essentially put that thing anywhere. It is practically indestructible. So essentially collection, just about anything that has to do with people can be part of a collection from an excavation or a survey, all the above. And, and I know a lot of times when people think collections, they think one of, of objects and not necessarily the paperwork that's associated with them. Although the paperwork is super, super important. And I'm going to come back to that oh, several yeah. times, probably over the course of this uh, episode. And we all should but, nail that home too. The paperwork is crucial. <laughs> yes. And someone in the future is going to see your paperwork. I know what you drew on it. Um, and, and it... It's so important for figuring out the, the context of what it is you're, you're looking at and being able to reanalyze and reevaluate in, in a meaningful way. Um, but, but the other thing about collections that a lot of people, I think, potentially mistake is kind of where they can be found. And, and you mentioned museums earlier um, mm -hmm. and shacks, but, <laughs> you know, you have collections in museums, you have collections in archives, you have collections at universities, you have collections in people's attics sometimes. Uh, that you <laughs> know, maybe coffee cans. <laughs> shouldn't yep. be there. Carports. Uh, <laughs> right. But you, you do also have, and I think a lot of people forget this, um, the, the National Park Service has huge collections. Um, they actually have more curatorial and collections positions than, you know, the Smithsonian and like MoMA and several other large museums combined. So, so those are also places that you can look for collections that need to be investigated. Mm -hmm. And if you're imagining at all the, that scene in Indiana Jones where that giant warehouse of stuff that's not too far from the truth when it comes to collections. Um, there can be these massive storage facilities with so many things. Like if when you go to the Smithsonian museums, you're not even seeing like a fraction of what is available to be seen. There are warehouses of stuff. So there's a lot of stuff and it all comes back to our main point on why should we use these older collections as opposed to adding to them. Um, so, I, so I believe everyone on this episode has some experience working with some older collections. So as, as much as we love them and as useful as we all find them and as, as important as we think they are, there are some unique issues that surround using, using older collections from... As I was saying, there are obviously good reasons for working with, with older collections, um, but there are also some unique challenges to working with, with older collections. So I don't know if people want to touch on some of their own experiences with some of the older cl collections that they have had the pleasure and or frustration of working with. <laughs> Let's see. Non-standard measurements. 
1940s to 60s era when they're using English measurements and not metric. Artifacts with a marker on them, numbers that mm. bear no relation to the numbers in the published reports. Where we had to compare pictures from the report to pictures and then the artifacts themselves. I've, I've gotten to do that before. I think somewhere from like 70 to 40 years ago, I guess, there seems to have been this trend in in recording artifacts in the field of put item on page outline item mm-hmm. put number on outline put all items in same bag i i've, I've gotten that on collections less than 10 years old so there's so few <laughs> doing that wow um most most of the collections that i've worked with have either been from an, an older time period or from a time period or there's been an older archaeologist involved with the excavation and you'll have like his set of notes and you know someone younger on the the team who after the fact went through and like redid everything yes um <laughs> and and when you have the original notes and all of the artifacts preservation issues aside with having a whole bunch of artifacts banging around in the same bag you can usually figure out a, a pretty good idea of, of what's what you know the 50 nails that look exactly the same or are just going to be the 50 nails that look exactly the same <laughs> but i've also seen sometimes where the in an attempt to preserve these these skins and things they have or these these drawings they've scanned them into a computer and they don't have any sort of scale on them and oftentimes they're not scanned at you know one to one ratio and then you're also trying to figure out how much larger or smaller these have been made and what artifacts they might fit with. Hooray! Yeah, it's frustrating. It is. It's a giant I've, puzzle. I've dealt a lot with um, mice and rats having eaten the context data from the bag. Ooh. <laughs> oh. That's problematic. I mean, not only do you get hantavirus, then you don't get <laughs> the notes to know what everything is, too. It's... Double whammy. One of the collections I was originally supposed to work with on my on my thesis had a lot of that problem. Fortunately, I was able to work with a different collection, but the original one it was paper bags that had been sitting in a metal outbuilding for over twenty years at that point, next to some springs. Mm. Ooh, it was rough. <laughs> Someone did eventually get to it and had to like piece together the parts of the bag that were left with some tweezers to try and get the context i've heard nightmare stories something along those lines but um also where things are held in multiple sheds and then one of the sheds burns down and so maybe you had the paperwork Uh, separate from the artifacts or the artifacts if their stone survived but then you don't have the paperwork um or things just generally being separated from where they're from uh you get those super early you know and i'm excavation in quotes you know it's excavation with a wink early on uh types where they were uh digging out um Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon, and they're essentially just hauling all this stuff back to um, the Smithsonian and, and, and to New York and uh, just like truckloads of stuff. And so everything's been separated then across, you know, to different universities, different agencies. And so who knows what collection goes with what in that so many of the pieces have been separated, that mm-hmm. something from just one room, all the objects are spread across the United States. 
Yeah. And, and itself is a nightmare trying to piece back together. Like, all right, this one thing should technically be here, but it could be at this one university in a different state because this one guy gave it to another guy back in 1930. Yes. We're having a couple of those issues uh, here in the state I'm working in. Someone, like, found the old uh, uh, BioArk's closet, and there was, like, random human remains in there. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And sh- someone has gotten a grant and is trying to get more money to do it. To Like, where is this from? Where is that from? We have maybe this article from the 20s that he excavated this rock shelter, this, oh, where are these things coming from? Why do some of these have holes in them? Are those his teaching models where did they come from and then we also not that long well it's been almost 20 years now this main state facility the roof caved in oh no Hmm. and and that's a serious problem there was um, a discussion there was there was actually not specifically geared towards the the need for for work with existing collections but on a on our collection in Belize that was really well taken care of for about 40 years and maybe a decade ago um, the the individual who was curating this this collection um, unfortunately passed away he was an, an older gentleman and you know Belize is hot and humid and the shelves were wooden and he had shelves full of remains that you know there, there are pictures of of nicely stacked and organized. And unfortunately they weren't, you know, in, in boxes or containers or bags or anything of any sort. They were just kind of sitting in, here's a pile of like one thing, here's a pile of another thing, but very carefully labeled. And because no one went into this um, office lab space for a decade, when they finally did open the door, all of the shelves had rotted and everything. Mm. And so it's just one big mess. Right. And, and even though you do have some of the, all right, you know, I've, I've got labels for some things short of DNA testing, trying to, to put people back to, together. Yeah. We even have that problem with older famous collections, like the Tut collection. The, um, the two mummified fetuses were like delicate and perfectly preserved when first excavated and someone tried to go back and look at them a few years ago and they're just one of them's dust and the other one not in great shape and that just brings up an interesting point too with um human human remains um at least in the united states just for the sake of our listeners there's uh there's been a massive push push since um the creation establishment of uh, nagpra the native american graves that Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act. Act. And that there are still collections that are so churned up or things get Mm -hmm. mixed together that even though there has been a push to repatriate a lot of these remains and objects, that there are still things being found. And technically by now, most things should be repatriated, but there are things still in boxes, whether burial objects or even human remains, a, a random femur, a random mandible will be found in a different collection. And that poses a lot of issues too, not only just with the conservation, but a lot of ethical issues. I'm like, well, where has this been? Why hasn't it been repatriated yet, et cetera. And, and a lot of the records from those early collections, unfortunately, provenance is sometimes not there. Sometimes the paperwork just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. 
And sometimes you look at it and what's written down is a thousand percent wrong. And it becomes very clear very quickly that this human remains are uh, oftentimes this will happen with um, grave goods that, you know, are, are sometimes easier to identify with a particular cultural group based on their, you know, stylistic variations or the method that was used to create them. Like pottery types. Um, yeah, exactly. Stone tools, um, things that are really good, clear indicators of a specific culture. Right. And and it'll let list culture A. And when you look at it, it's clearly from culture C. And then you start to get into questions of, you know, the likelihood of this being grave robbery, which oftentimes, unfortunately, is fairly high. But then who are we repatriating it to? You know, do we go with the records? Do we go with... Um, how we would classify it today. Is there a modern group that's claiming it, you know, and, and trying to figure out all of these pieces can be very complex and there's no one size fits all solution. So you kind of have to, to do it again every time. Um, and it makes um, the, the process time consuming. Keeping that in, in mind, I will say there are some beautiful, glorious, fulfilling, um, theses and dissertations of figuring that out i got to watch one and it was really really interesting to watch one of my classmates the university had been giving a been given a nagpra collection from one of those you know small desert mom and pop little museums and the remains had been excavated in the early 20th century by the local what was it football coach and the team from the high school wow and they had, you know, been at this little museum, and then they, they were like, oh, NAGPRA. So they somehow got to the university I was going to, and she was able, this was her entire um, her entire thesis. She figured out who these people were, where they wow. came from, their MNIs. She got them in context, and wow. they were delivered to her, you guys. And so all the long bones were in cans. Oh. <sighs> <sighs> There was a burlap bag of, like, teeth and pieces. Oh, boy. Oh, my gosh. There's some other questionable collection management practices that don't need to be public, but... <laughs> yes. Right. But she was able to sat there in the ballroom, because we had, like, a little area for, like, human remains that was, you know, often different from all of us rock liquors that were, you know, outside the ballroom. And I thought it was really... It gave them their respect back you know, as human remains. Wow. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to imply that it was like impossible or, and it's, and it's super important. Work. Oh, no. It just is really hard and it's really time consuming Yeah, and it needs to right. be done. You know, right. Is, so so I'm just saying, done. think about that. You don't have to go get your, your remains. You don't have to go do this or that. These things are there and they need you. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, so the conditions in which stuff is stored, <laughs> not the greatest. So I think hard. that that's a, a really great point to kind of end on for our, our first 20 minutes is these these collections are there and they they need someone to work with them and um, give them a chance. So we'll be back shortly. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store 
and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far on tonight's episode, we have been discussing the some of the challenges that exist when you are working with older collections um, and defining what exactly it is we mean by older archaeological collections and, and where you can find them. In the next 20 minutes, we're going to talk a bit more about why it's really important that we, you know, work through some of the difficulties to, to utilize these collections um, and really have them contribute to the archaeological record. And I believe, Cheryl, you had some thoughts on that. I do. My uh, PhD dissertation research was on uh, stone projectile points uh, from the Paleo-Indian period. So that's big spear tips from roughly 9,000 years ago. And I was interested in what... Um, Facts in, in manufacture made some of these similar between, you know, different modern states now. So New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, basically. And I looked at uh, projectile points from 13 different sites, and they were in four different museums with a couple of sites split between museums. And the collection, probably the earliest was in the early 40s, and then the latest was into the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, give or take. And you couldn't answer that systematic question about, uh, you know, how artifacts look in a region by excavating one site. So the only data points of use would have been different sites. And so it made sense for the museums that held the collections to be the places where I collected my data. So I did a a week at the Smithsonian, which was really cool because you talk about the behind the scenes work and you're walking down the office halls with the different curators and they have glass cases and stuff that they're researching that's not on display. And that was like a kid in a candy store. Um, so that was one thing. And then University of Colorado and University of Wyoming, um, you know, university settings. But, you know, these were collections that were normally open to the public. And then I was able to... Uh, through contacts, get a hold of a, a private collector for some things in the that were excavated in the uh, 40s and 50s, and you know sold through a couple collectors to him. And this particular guy was open to having them studied. And so uh, awesome. one day, yeah, one day, you know, it's, we're we're sitting. He had a big long wooden table, and he he brought out the projectile points, and I was able to uh, cross-reference some of it because I'd already handled some casts in a, in a university collection. And so there was a, there was differences just because the casts weren't that accurate. Um, but it was interesting to just sort of informally note the differences, but I could not have done that as field excavation. Now, the problem is I had to deal with everybody else's uh, recording methods, and I had to be very familiar with the excavation reports and who was doing what and what these units meant and who thought that that was right and who thought that it was wrong. And I had to really go into uh, the history of archaeological theory and explain, hey, this stuff was collected in the 40s and the standards were different and the interpretation was different. And it, it forced the research to be 
much more in, in context for archaeological theory and archaeological history, as well as answering the question that I had. But on the flip side of it, I was researching, you know, stone tools are, they preserve well. Um, the projectile points are pretty. They're kept. You know, in the 40s, some of the flakes might have been thrown away, but the projectile points were kept. So I was definitely dealing with preservation bias, but you know, <laughs> that was okay because it, the question I had was about manufacturers of projectile points. So that that's pretty much my comments there. That's awesome. It sounds like it was a really worthwhile study that not only did you get to work with a unique connect, uh, collection, but got to learn about a lot about them too. I did. The logistics were a little crazy, you know, trying to get four different research trips done and oh geez, yeah. you know, funded on, I ended up funding it on several small grants. And so I did it over, you know, a couple of years rather than, you know, if I'd done one summer's worth of field work or two summer's worth of field mm-hmm. work, but um, it all works out in the wash. And that brings up an interesting point just with the funding um, to think sometimes it's cheaper to do maybe a survey or a small excavation as opposed to doing a study of older collections. And I wonder if that's true across the board, if it's sometimes harder and more expensive to work with an older collection than just doing your own test excavation somewhere else. I I don't know about harder or more expensive. I do know um, several years ago, probably more than a decade, potentially even two, Joan Giro wrote a really fascinating piece that I believe was called the woman at home ideology. And one of the things that she looked at in that was the funding realities for both men versus women, but also for collections based work. And she was particularly looking at information from the NSF. Um, I I think in part because all of the information from the NSF on who they're given, they have given grants to is publicly available. But she was looking at the percentage of dissertations, uh, dissertation studies that were funded by the by the NSF and grant proposals that included some element of fieldwork were funded at a much higher rate than solely collection based Fieldwork, and that's not to say that some of these proposals didn't have collection-based components to them. You know, where they were going to spend five months excavating in the summer, but the site that they were going to be excavating at had been excavated for three years prior, and they wanted to get the funding to also look at, you know, the artifacts that were in the collection from the three previous years and spend time in in the lab. So they weren't. 100 necessarily 100 percent excavation reports but you know this this kind of idea of macho he-man out in the field finding you know whatever (laughs) atlantis or whatever it is where you know just you know something seems much sexier than being like i'm going to work in the right discovering it in egypt or finding a temple in in greece or turkey or finding Mm -hmm. a quote-unquote lost, you know, Mayan city or whatever it is that we're covering. Yeah. But I was able to find a change in technology that statistically significantly correlated to climate change in prehistory. <laughs> Which is so that's, important. So and important. That's, and that's way sexier than a step. 
Yes. <laughs> but the step I found was cool. Part of how this is valued, you know, not mm-hmm. not only in like an American or Western culture in general, but still what we're sort of fighting against in the culture of archaeology in in the West. Oh, definitely. You, know, you can get the money for this, you can get the money for that. But what about all these other things? And we have seen, you know, since oh the seventies or eighties in paleontology, people realizing the value of the collections. And you know, you'll see people talking like, Oh, I went through this whole hundred year thing and I found this head and I found this head and this completely changed what we thought about this species in this time period. <laughs> And I, I mean, people are gonna realize existed. We realized this wasn't the head for that one. Okay. Uh, we, you know, we redigged this nest and found out these things we thought were a different species are actually the juveniles of this one and the hatchlings of that one. Took my and legs. I'm and they sure put the them same thing's been happening a bunch with archaeological collections. I mean, people are constantly right. finding out new things. I mean, just look at let's see the Ice Man. Nothing has been new, like new and from where he was found. There has been no excavations, whatever. And there has been, what, 20 some years of research just on this one individual. I mean, granted, it's a treasure trove of information. But if you think about it, I mean, it's just it it just keeps me more and more just to see him. And so it's just like, like, think of all the things that could be found in other collections as technology is always improving. They're finding out more stuff about, let's see, the Iceman. Well, that can be true for all kinds of collections. Like if you have an old yeah. soil sample or wooden beam or I don't know, charcoal, that random charcoal sample from a site that nothing's been done with and new technology comes out or better AMS, mm-hmm. you can test it and then new things are found out. But I, I don't think people always remember that. that well, like Deidre, right. like you're saying so about the dinosaur bones, the same thing can be said. It's like you never know what you'll find or with new technology and as data um, databases are improving, we can learn more things. Or, or even just with new eyes. I mean, you'll, you'll go through a collection that was curated in the 30s by a bunch of dudes and you put an all an all woman crew on, on looking at them with new eyes and you'll get some fascinating new interpretations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just like, what? Or you'll take something from the Southwest that was interpreted by white people and put indigenous archaeologists on it, and they go, oh, no, that's not what that is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so, I mean, if people are going to get paleontology and archaeology confused all the time, anyway, might as well glom onto that excitement for the collections <laughs> and say, look, friend, our lab work. Mm-hmm. You know, I always get frustrated in some of my work at CRM because I actually took these CRM specialized classes in grad school and they're like, oh, you know, for curation, you have to put this huge chunk if you're going to do it right. I'm like, yeah, we're going to do it right. And then I would try and put these budgets together. And some of my supervisors were like, no, no one does that much for curation. I'm like, that's why your data suck. <laughs> yeah. you know, your data are now useful, useless. Well, and if we're you going left to... your artifacts in the carport of the house you sold. I thought but... in the CRM world, generally, if they paid curation, it was like just to get it to the museum, and then the museum stuck with the ongoing costs. And you know, federal yeah. agencies are supposed to pay the ongoing costs. And I had a, a couple right. of years worth of of work as a uh, student intern for a federal agency, and I'm I'm 
was dealing with some of the proposals and the scopes of work and just you know dotting the i's and crossing the t's and making sure all the numbers added up and inevitably someone from operations would come into the office of the archaeologist and the biologist and say why are we paying for this and you have to explain you know it's an ongoing cost you know we're responsible Mm -hmm. for it once it comes out of the ground i was gonna say on that note i think there are instances where people don't realize that it that it's an ongoing cost or when they when they're excavating they don't necessarily factor in the ongoing cost to the cost of excavation and it's you know interesting and fascinating to to learn new things about the, the past cultures i think we would all agree with that we're, we're all archaeologists for a reason but there are so many issues with funds not being available and collections rotting away or like bits of Pompeii are falling down because they mm-hmm. don't have the money to, f- to fix and support all of these houses that mm-hmm. survived, you know, in ancient times because people were living them and doing kind of the day-to-day maintenance um, to, to keep the building standing. And then, you know, Vesuvius <laughs> um, and being in ca- encased in a uh, volcano ash, you know, cooled lava and everything is... Pretty good preservation uh, technique a lot of times, um, depending on what it is you're talking about. What are like the ethical responsibilities of archaeologists for taking this information out of the ground, doing some sort of interpretation with it, but then allowing the wealth of knowledge that's in those those objects and those artifacts to degrade and disappear? It doesn't seem fair to modern people for all the information that we're losing. It is certainly not fair to people in the past who, um, you know, especially again, if you're talking human remains, like, but we're, we're disrupting them and their, their lives and, you know, the evidence of their life. And I think that there is also an, an ethical concern there. And that's a concern. I don't think a lot of people take into account because the fun part, is the digging. Who does right. love excavating? I mean, I love collections. I think collections yeah. are fun, but. <laughs> <laughs> and I do too. It's just like when you're in the dirt, like I, I, I mean, for, from my personal experience, I mean, I, when I'm excavating a um, slab lined roasting pit, I'm not thinking about what are going to happen to those slabs once I wrap them in foil and send them off for curation. Mm-hmm. It can. It doesn't necessarily occur to me, but it's a really good point because, like, well, what is going to happen to this stuff? It'll get tested, cleaned, but then it's going to be in the collections for however long. And I know there's been, like you're saying, ethical debates. Well, some museums are even considering selling collections that they don't consider will have any more value or there isn't the space. Well, then that brings up a major ethical concern of, well, heck, is that even ethical? Should we even do that? And what should be done? Why did I even bag all those pieces anyway? Exactly, and uh, I, I know you're going to put a nice term on it as deaccession, but ugh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> some no, of it's that a bad. I, I call it a bad idea. <laughs> sure, but but some of that is done with the best of intentions. Of I can't afford to take care of this. If I sell right. it to someone else with, you know, a legal agreement that they will take care of that, and then all of a sudden I also get this chunk of, of change that I can use to take care of the collection items that I still do have. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, our dance, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I just but, but I worry about the precedent. It's tricky. Starts. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that several of the collections institutions that I've dealt with, you know, putting stuff up from the field have, you know, been raising their prices. And everywhere here, you know, from the CRM archaeologists, are like, oh, I can't believe they're raising their prices. I'm like, but they actually need to raise them that much because they have to take care of them as far as we're concerned forever. Yeah. And, you know, they have to get the the fire extinguisher that won't ruin your paperwork or your carbon (laughs) samples. They have to do all this stuff. Not just any and, kinds you know, of boxes, but fancy boxes. Acid-free, <laughs> so your papers like, don't decay. Exactly. Your photos. And, the, and those special see-through papers to put the really old papers in so you can actually look at them. Stuff like that. And so that's not only the value of our culture, you know, trying to get this stuff funded, but also in the people that are being attracted to our field. It's like, mm-hmm. I love digging. But I also love digging through a collection and looking for patterns. Mm-hmm. I was quite fortunate. The funding I was able to get for, for my thesis was I had to get all the old field schools together and all their data and that joy of recording and then also run a field school and smush it all together and say, look at this thing. I figured it out. <laughs> and mm-hmm. without all those old ones even with some of the recording errors i would not have gotten my pattern i would not have had enough data to make it statistically significant i would have had a lot of really cool rocks and i would have had a great public presentation because my site had a lot of projectile points <laughs> but i would have said that there was like look there's some gray rocks what does that mean i mean i love my rocks but I like it more when my rocks are talking to me and only if I can get the collection and compare it to other collections and learn, you know, learn the language of other rocks. And then we can have a conversation. Yeah, yeah. it's about it's about getting the data out because everybody knows archaeologists who do all sorts of field work and then don't write up. And like 50 years later, no one knows the excavation records for a particular site because it's not mm-hmm. published. And the same problem, I think, happens in the museum world. Everybody knows people who excavate and send it off the museum and nothing's heard of it again. So so part of this is when you excavate, please, for the love of whatever it is you believe in, like publish, not just an article, but like publish your data, make it open source, put your spreadsheets mm-hmm. out there. Don't hide it. Yeah. But for nothing Don't else, Bogart. do it for the ego. <laughs> like, ha, you got that, but you had to use my data. I, I will say, the, I keep going back to my thesis, in this episode is because it's very pertinent to this particular discussion, but mm-hmm. there's been a lot more theses done at my site at other locations immediately adjacent to my site, and they all have to cite me <laughs> in their <laughs> research. Google Scholar in your reference, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I can join the other technology bees. It's now black, black, bled, Belman, and shot. <laughs> like I said, it's it's changing the value of of people's perceptions of the data and people's perceptions of the work, and that's good for everybody. Yeah, um, it it really is. So I think that uh, that again is a, is a great place to stop on is that we really need to engage in some uh like institutional type type change um in how we value collections 
And when we come back, we'll maybe talk a little bit about ways that we can work on that um, and some places that have had more success than, than we maybe have with utilizing the collections that they do have. Interested in archaeology? Want to hear from experts in the field about the latest discoveries and interpretations? Check out the Archaeology Show every other Saturday and let hosts Chris Webster and April Camp Whitaker take you deeper into the story. Check out the Archaeology Show at www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology and subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and the Google Music Store. That's www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology. Now back to the show. Hello, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far tonight, we've been talking about using older collections in our our research, some of the difficulties and some of the rewards of, of doing that. Um, and moving on in this third section, we are going to start talking about a couple different things, um, some ways in which we can try to encourage people to use collections, some other countries that have had some better success rates with getting people to use their their collections how to get access to collections some potential uses for collections that might not have a provenience but are still you know useful archaeological tools and emily i believe you had some thoughts on that so if you want to jump in sure um so for my master's a thesis project and what's great because it seems like we all use collections in one way or another i worked with a whole bunch of unprovenienced artifacts and so there were just boxes and boxes of things that um where people had taken stuff from public lands and then decided to donate it later but who knows where it came from if you have 1.2 million acres to choose from it's hard to pinpoint where <laughs> where to put something um and so for my thesis, I was making a simulated excavation at a large scale. And so I was literally just handed boxes of different types of pottery um, flakes that we have no idea what to do with. And we already had type collections for um, pottery and flakes and whatnot. So we didn't need another teaching um, collection. So I was able to create really really unique layers in this big, massive scale simulated excavation that uh, school groups would then excavate down. So building ground up, which is a lot of fun, but uh, we're able to do something with these collections that otherwise had no purpose. And so they were a great education tool. And before that um, helped create uh, different teaching collections where this pottery, um, flakes, tools that we had no idea where it came from, uh, ground stone, all of these things that could then be used for school groups, um, even really young kids who wouldn't otherwise really be able to handle artifacts. And then we wouldn't have to worry too much if they broke them, um, if they got scattered or anything of that sort. And so they can be wonderful education tools and kids really get into it when they can actually touch the material. It's not just seeing it through the glass at a museum. If they get to handle something, I think the lessons really sink in much deeper. And I honestly, I think that's true even at a higher level, even teaching um, at the college level. I've noticed um, not vast experience, but in my one class that I've, I've been teaching, I've noticed the students really connect so much more with the material that we've been learning about if they can actually then handle the material um, as opposed to this like 
concept and it kind of ties everything together nicely. So I feel like Unprovenience collections have a lot of use. They don't need just to sit around and not have any purpose. They can really have a lot of use educationally um, from type collections to doing fun things with students um, to creating a simulated excavation. There's a lot of different things that can be done. The the labs that I taught at university in the Audis, we used unprovenienced, poorly provenienced artifacts of various mm-hmm. types for the class. Yeah, so did we. And and it's also nice that they weren't part of a really important collection because at least once a year something was stolen. Ooh, like, what, that's too bad. What are you doing with the flake? <laughs> like, why? Being excited that you have it for 10 minutes, shoving it in the back yeah. of the drawer, forgetting it's there, and leaving it there, or throwing <laughs> it on the ground after you've shown your friend. Don't and, do and that. And you certainly brought up a thing because I was very fortunate growing up that, uh, you know, my, my family and my teachers nurtured this weird history, archaeology, <laughs> geology thing that I had. I was that annoying kid that their siblings would be in the museum. OK, we saw it, whatever. And I'm like, I have to read every word. <laughs> and some of some of not a small part of the archaeology not only do I get to tell people stories, but I get to touch the stuff. <laughs> right? You know that stuff you saw? I get to touch it. <laughs> you get to find it. <laughs> exactly. Well, not even a lot of collections, I get to touch it. Well, yeah, but then you found it in the collections after nobody yes, else I had found looked it at twice. It. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, go into collections and you get to touch stuff. <laughs> and not get in trouble. <laughs> Exactly. Yes, and not get in trouble. You know how to touch it correctly. <laughs> I know I've never been so terrified of breaking something than being in museum oh a museum collection room of prehistoric um, ancestral Pueblo and pottery. And they were moving the collections. And so things were on these like foam pedestals and all the stuff and kind of looking around and they're like, here, hold this. And I'm just like, I'm going to break it. And just being utterly terrified. I was going to break this beautiful, like intact pot from um, some site. And it was just like, oh, God. And I mean, it's a it's a true testament to those museum curators that they didn't break anything. Like I, I'm just I think it's <laughs> awesome that they can cr- like create these beautiful pedestals and means to protect these artifacts. Yeah. That I know I'm a klutz and should not be trusted around. <laughs> <laughs> like that's an art in and of itself. Oh right? yeah. I know. Every now and then I'd go in the human the human remains room, and I just like I don't want to breathe. I'm gonna breathe somebody in. I just—I don't want to hurt your study. Been studies done about the non-viability of pathogens that exist in skeletons. I'm not saying they're all non-viable. Oh, it's not the pathogens. It's just I'm breathing in a person. It's just a weird concept. It is. It is a weird concept. And I didn't want to mess up her research. I was like, I want to breathe wrong, and want to, and your skull that you just finished putting together is going to fall down. It's going to break. It's going to be all my fault. But this is not to I'll dissuade to my, anybody to from going into a collections room. <laughs> I mean, um, I you learn how to go. Regularly. Yeah, you learn how to work with it. I, I don't so, know yeah. that I have these major concerns. <laughs> well, you're used to it. I'm used to. 
well, bumbling around in the out great out of doors with a shovel and a screen and I can run into trees and not worry about it. Where <laughs> And it's the type of collections that you're dealing with. If it's something you're not used excuse me, used to. You know, if you're used to doing documents and you're in a bone room or if you're used to doing ceramics and now yeah, you're in the in a ceramics room, textile room. If you put me in a ceramics room, I would probably cry. <laughs> <laughs> and be like so afraid. You're just sitting there vibrating and wearing the vibrating break or something. Yeah. So anyway, these collections, how how do you even get to touch them? So that's Secret handshake. Right. It it can be really tricky. Um and it kind of depends on what you're you're looking at. Having institutional affiliation certainly makes things easier. Um, whether that's you work at a university or you work at another museum or at a national park service. Or you're contracting to the same. Yeah, exactly. Oftentimes that means contacting the head of the collection, which usually means some internet research. If you're lucky, if you're not, have fun with your phone book. We're, we're rapidly moving away from those days, but they're not gone yet. <laughs> um, you know, but, but contacting the appropriate person and requesting access which is, is less, hey, I want access and more, I'm interested in access. What form do I need to fill out? What type of proposal do you need? You're often going to have to, to submit a, a several page proposal, even if you are with an academic institution, which they will review and approve or, or not approve, depending on what you're looking for. You, there can be special considerations, um, human remains always have special considerations when you're talking about trying to to access those those items if you are not affiliated with a a particular institution it's often harder to get access you have to prove that you have the requisite skills and that you are a trustworthy enough person to allow you know into their collection rooms they're not just gonna let anybody in there although you sometimes have to museums to provide a tour but i don't think you're allowed to touch things well uh, i will say in uh, in textile research is one area where i've seen people that it's the area i've seen the most that people who are not associated with a research facility or a university or maybe not even have the what we might consider credentials but have been able to prove their research capabilities. Hmm. And so they basically have had to move up, you know, they go to the local museum, they go, I want to look at your Victorian corsets. The stuff that we have more examples of, you're going to be able to get easier access to with less uh, qualifications. And by doing that, just like any other field, right? Mm -hmm. You can move your way up. Do you, uh, I I mean, obviously you need a a permit to be able to conduct, conduct an excavation on public lands. Do you need a permit to be able to look at the collections? On, Not that I'm um, aware of. That, like, if it's in, at a national park or forest. In or the something. United States, not that I've come across. Okay. I, I think the general rule of thumb in the U.S. is if you can convince the collection manager that you are a qualified enough individual to, to access the collection. You, they act as the gatekeeper. Right. You should be allowed to. Now, right. some of that does change um, based on the country that you're in. There are also specific considerations around indigenous objects. So and one of the things, human remains. Right. But but not even human remains. Um, I mean, when we talk about Nagpur, everyone talks about giving things back. Yes. Not realizing that there are also some tribes who 
don't want their things back either because that's complicated. Yes, that's very complicated, you know, or who are willing to allow their objects to remain in curation with a particular collections manager that they know and trust, you know, and, and it gets into into the reads very, very quickly. But you can have collections. I was reading a, a particular piece about a collection in, I believe it was New Zealand, where the, you know, the, the Maori group, I believe it was, that this collection was from, those individuals were willing to allow the collection to exist, but they wanted um, some sort of affirmation that the collections manager in charge of this particular part of the collection would always be male because of, um, you know, cultural constraints around who can access and who can see these and Hmm. that they wanted to be able to look over any requests to access the collection and that like women couldn't do it. And that if you were talking about like a multidisciplinary or multi-person team, like you couldn't have women on that team, you know, you could have a bunch of co-authors, but all of them had to be male. Um, and, and this really difficult position that the museum was put in because there was some concern that they might be opening themselves up to some claims regarding uh, like sexism, mm-hmm. because if we if we agree to all of this, how do we tell 50 percent of the population that they just can't access it? And that also influences their hiring in the future. It means they will never be able to hire a woman into this position. Um, that is complicated on many, yeah. many levels. Yeah. And these are these are the things you have to research to do your research. And I do so, think I mean, that is you know, an issue. Definitely in collections are issues of like cultural um, patrimony what are objects are considered sacred and that's not always a a factor in when things are being studied and so it's always important with consultation as well for whatever project is being done even if you're doing a a collections-based project make sure you're consulting with those who need to be consulted because these collections are fascinating amazing but you want to make sure you're giving them the respect and those that the objects have descendants who care about those objects are consulted your best faith effort to make sure you're respecting everyone involved and if someone brings up that you're doing it wrong just just apologize and figure it out from there mm-hmm. right now I, I do want to touch on a little bit we've got a couple minutes left so before we all have to, to say our good nights are some countries that have had a little bit better success rate with having their their collections utilized. And I'm particularly thinking about the Twitter conversation that, that John Lowe instigated, where there, there did seem to be a, a fairly sharp divide between U.S. scholars um, and European scholars, particularly scholars from the United Kingdom, in that a lot of the individuals from the United Kingdom were stating that they did a lot more work with their collections as part of master's theses, as part of dissertation work, just just kind of in general. And there seems to be a both a different outlook towards collections, but some of it is also very practical in that, at least for PhDs, the average PhD in the U.S. in anthropology, last time I checked, which admittedly was a couple years ago, was seven to 10 years, which also is just like a startlingly large amount of time. And... In the UK, it's really three to four. It is three to five. Oftentimes it is 
funded for three the fourth year they're not going to give you any money but they're not going to charge you tuition and if you hang around for five they are going to start charging you tuition and if you're still there after six you better have a really good reason um <laughs> because oftentimes you have to convince the, the department not to just terminate your program and say you're done and some wow. of that is that a lot of those phd programs don't require classes they assume that if you have a master's and most phd programs you are required to have a master's to, to go into or at least the ones i had investigated um, but they figure if you have a master's, you took classes for your master's and you should know what you're talking about. So you you kind of just jump in to do research from the get go. But if you only have three years to figure out, plan, propose, research and write up a dissertation, you don't have time for two, three, four five years of field seasons. That's true. The graduate program that I did, I haven't looked at if it's still this way, it was an accelerated two years master's program. With a terminal master's. Mm-hmm. Mine too. Um, they wanted everyone out in two to two and a half. They got really annoyed if it was three or more. Um, and so I think we did end up with a lot. And it was like all the anthropologies. Uh, but the archaeology, I think we ended up doing a lot with collections. And that was part of it. It was because, look, this is right here. Mm-hmm. You can be done. Yeah. This is what we can give you money for. Okay. We need this properly back so we can go up to the lab and stop paying money for this thing over here. I can do that. Give me money. Okay. <laughs> My program was the same way. There are so many people doing collections-based projects at the local museum. Um, the Museum of Northern Arizona, which had a beautiful collection facility. And there were a lot of people who did pottery analysis, all kinds of projects. And yeah, it gave them a great opportunity to, for one thing, like, like Deidre... It was a two-year program. They wanted you out. So you had a great collection to work with and get on out of there. We want you in here. We want you out there spreading our university name all over. Just like... <laughs> exactly. Just like smush it everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and now, you know, I'll get... It's been a decade since my master's, and, I, and I'll run into, you know, fresh, you know, fresh uh, field techs. And they're like, oh, yeah, I went there, and I did this. And I was like, oh... So did I. I could probably put together a whole crew of you know, people just from that program mm-hmm. because, you know, it was accelerated. And especially a lot of the archaeologists that were there when I started, the professors uh, had been CRM archaeologists before they were professors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they really liked, look at my little ducklings. I pull them from the field and bring them on high to do other things. You don't want to go into academia, stay in CRM. (laughs) Here's a collection, do some work. Very good. That's my interpretation. Figure it out, you're an adult. Okay, thank you. I mean, figuring out the interpretations can be difficult for for collections work. I have certainly met archaeologists in the past who really... They like digging, and and when you start talking about interpretations, they're like, oh, like I, but I dug, and I can write a site report about like all the things and make profile walls, and that's that's like pooping and not wiping your butt. <laughs> <laughs> but there are people who exist who do that. <laughs> that's true. This is going downhill. <laughs> but it's true. You made this huge mess. Now what? So you, you what, what are you going to do with this huge mess you just made? You got to clean it up. You got to get it ready for a collection. You got to put it in the collection. What's it mean? It's a pile of rocks right now. Figure it out. 
<laughs> it's and a if, cool podcast. And if you're not good at wiping your own butt, make sure you're partnered with someone that can. You know, <laughs> those partnerships exist for a reason, but you gotta find them. Yeah, divide and conquer. Yep. <laughs> yep. So collections. Uh, Anyways, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Someone has to handle the bags and bags of broken glass. And so all the bent nails. And We are a- approaching that, that magical 60-minute mark. Um, <laughs> Hooray. So if anyone has any, any final thoughts as we are all... Um, I'm tapped out. <laughs> yes, clearly dealing with the effects of, of late nights and exhaustion. How about... Collections are important. They're important to preserve and they're important to go back and look at because every time some new eyes look on it, even if it's the same eyes now that they're older, you're going to find something and all of that is good data. You never step in the same river twice. Sorry, I didn't mean to step on you. I think yeah. I think that's a good point. I would also like to add, we, we didn't really touch on this so much, but um, we did talk a little bit about how collections are, are sometimes uh these days, people are debating selling them because they can't take care of them. A big part of being able to take care of collections is having the money to do so. And whether that takes the place of the $20 a week bench fee that you have to pay some places um, to, you know, go work on their collections. And yes, you can get funding to pay for that for you. So whether it's it's that or when people are applying to funding agencies to try and get funds to you know, work on these collections um, and conserve them, being able to say, hey, but people are interested in coming and looking at our collection. And I can say that because we've had, you know, this many people come um, work on our collection or this many people ask about working on our collection. You know, those those things matter. So um, if you're one of those wonderful, beautiful people capable of approving funding for collections, (laughs) You can be also do that. at a important point <laughs> on the forefront of archaeology by looking back at the collection. If you are one of those proposal. beautiful people and would like to reach out, <laughs> our email is womeninarchaeologypodcast.gmail.com. <laughs> we would love to I mean, hear either that or the overthrow of capitalism, but funding right now a little easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on that note, I, I think we... We'll say goodnight. Uh, thank you so much for joining me tonight. As always, it is a pleasure. And I look forward to talking to you all again soon. Good night, everybody. Good night. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomptep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening.
This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.